Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show I speak to writer and director Gene Stupnitsky about the new Jennifer Lawrence sex comedy No Hard Feeling as well as writing The US Office. Wes Anderson returns with his latest offer Asteroid City and we find out whether it will keep his devotees happy. Plus, I talk to actor and Broadway star Darren Lee about new Tony Award winning production of The King and I and what he did when the lights went out on Broadway. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 pm on newstalk.com with the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. As we reach the end of another very warm week, uh, there was a kind of schools out feeling in our household this week uh, as my kids all finished school and creche respectively. So the the wheels were coming off after a year of schooling and my youngest fellow left creche like he, he ended his preschool. So that's that's them all through that. He's going to start school in September. So the passage of time, tempus fugit, as they say. Tempus fugit, as they say in Latin-speaking houses on the north side of Dublin. But the passage of time, it's a cliche, but it really does speed up the longer you're around. You know, it's, it, it's accelerating. I'm in that phase of life where time is accelerating. Anyway, what does help to slow down time is to watch TV and movies. So uh, let's get to that. It's Iran's backyard. If we want to know who did this... They'll have better intelligence than anyone else. Shaheen's own regime will go after him. He will be killed. If we go to war with Iran, a lot of people will be killed. Shaheen wants to modernize his country. He's one of the only people in the regime who gets along with the reformists and the military and the mullahs because his father rode bikes with the supreme leader when they were 10. And inexplicably, he doesn't believe we're the great Satan. I understand he's valuable. You don't. An Iran deal can be revoked, clearly. What we are really doing when we negotiate with them or with anyone is looking for one or two friends we can call when the world is truly f***ed. It is a flimsy web of relationships, but sometimes it holds. Do not tear it. Do not be an infinitely ravenous American. Use what he already gave you. Now, that was a clip from The Diplomat on Netflix, which has been up there for a couple of weeks, but I finally got around to all eight episodes of it. And there you heard Kerry Russell giving it socks. Uh, She plays Kate Wyler, kind of the US equivalent of an experienced civil servant who's kind of bounced by the president and his chief of staff into becoming the new ambassador into the UK. And this is in the wake of a British aircraft carrier being attacked in the Middle East, causing 41 deaths and inflaming all sorts of tensions between the UK and the US and Iran and other people about who's suspected of carrying out the attack. It's this kind of fish out of water tale where she comes to the UK, doesn't really want to be there, but unbeknownst to her, she's kind of being prepped for possibly becoming vice president. In tandem with that, Her husband is a former ambassador as well, played by Rufus Swale. And he's an interesting fellow who is very charismatic, but annoys people and is very uncomfortable being the ambassador's wife, uh, playing that role, which he is here. Now, I really enjoyed this. This is 
touch of the West Wing where it's political intrigue, a lot of very wordy and full-on dialogue between, you know, of people in back rooms and political halls of power, but also very dramatic, not just in the language, but in what happens, the relationship between Kate Wilder and Rufus Swale is fascinating. And she really doesn't want to be where she is, as I say, and that works very well. And the drama etches up with each passing episode. There's only eight episodes. I was talking to Anton Savage this week, who was in for Pat Kenny about it on our series Boxed. And I made bold claims that it was kind of filling up a West Wing style hole that you might have in your life because it is reminiscent of the West Wing. And it, maybe it's not that good, but that it's only one season so far. So it, it's hard to tell if it's going to continue its heady pace, but it, there's certainly going to be more series of it. But The Diplomat is very entertaining TV. And if you like a good political espionage kind of thriller, I think The Diplomat is great. It's eight episodes. They're less than an hour, most of them, as far as I can remember. Kate Wilder is brilliant in it. Uh, she really is fantastic. So The Diplomat, I'm giving very positive uh, thumbs up to. So do let me know if you might have watched The Diplomat. A lot of people got in touch last week about Black Mirror or during the week saying they started watching it and mostly enjoying it. Uh, the, the fact that you can dip in and out of it. Last week we spoke to lots of the cast of Black Mirror and... Uh, People, for the most part, enjoying it. One or two episodes, not so much. I do think Demon 79 might be the best one in the current series if you're looking for one to watch. Also, people largely enjoying the full Monty. We also spoke to the cast of that last week and enjoying the direction it went in because it's not really about men taking off their clothes to the amusement of people. It's about what happened to those guys mostly and, and some women in Sheffield in the intervening years. So that's the full Monty on Disney plus still being enjoyed by people. Cause it's only been there a week as is black mirror on Netflix, but the diplomat is what I wanted to tell you about. Cause I do think if you're looking for some bingeable TV this weekend, you could do a lot worse than the diplomat. But as I say, do let me know what you're currently watching. John, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and movie show. Now, the big release of the week, and for certain people, possibly the year, is the new Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. I, for one, am one of those annoying devotees who just adore him and utter things like how he has his own cinematic language and such pretentiousness like that. But I do think it's true. And if I had a gun to my head, as I've told you before, if I did have to pick a favourite movie of all time, it would probably be The Royal Tannenbaum. So it was with great excitement I went along to see his new movie, which is released this week, called Asteroid City. But more importantly, journalist and now author of Social Capital, Aoife Barry, also saw Asteroid City and she joins me now. Hello, Aoife. How's it going? Very well. It's Wes Anderson week, so what could be wrong with the world? Uh, so let's get straight to it, Aoife. As it's clear, my credentials, I adore the man. Are you a fan? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not um, a super fan like you. So I apologize in advance to super fans listening for <laughs> inevitably getting some reference somewhere wrong. But I really, what I really love about Wes Anderson is like he is a true auteur, even though I don't always like when that word, you, talk, you can chat to me outside of the show about, about my thoughts on that, <laughs> mainly because you don't tend to have that word used with a lot of female directors, but I digress. Um, but he really is like, he's really uh, just so particular, so smart and intelligent. I love the way he frames things. I love the colors he 
uses. I just love how you can tell every single bit of his movies had had so much thought put into it. Um, so I was looking forward to, to seeing this. And I think anytime I see Wes Anderson film in the cinema, it's always a lovely experience. Even if I didn't like adore the film, I really, really enjoy the sumptuousness of seeing Yeah, it. they're films less ordinary, uh, no, ma- no matter what you make of them. It, it has to be said. And I, I completely with you on everything you say about auteur. When I hear the phrase auteur, I'm like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> He's making movies or she's making movies because it's a yeah. good point you make as well. But I think you're right. I think when it comes to Anderson, that's that's a word, uh, that's an adjective or a noun or whatever it is that that does fill him. So, Asteroid City, I mean, it's you know loosely a sci-fi movie, but there's a lot more going on than that. Tell our listeners what it's about as best you can, because it's kind of complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. So bear with me. It's like a little nesting doll of a film. So it opens with a television show host who introduces you basically to a televised production of a play called Asteroid City. Right. So you've got like, you know, the main thing that you the color, the colorful, you know, the in color um, thing that you see if you look at the trailer, that is Asteroid City, which is a play. But we're also actually watching a kind of a TV almost documentary about the making of that. And that that's in black and white. And we flash between all of those. And Brian Cranston is our host, you know, the who introduces us to that particular TV show and talks us through different different elements of it. So we get to meet like the actors who are playing the actors who are playing the actors in Asteroids. City. So you've got all of these different layers and it, you know, it sounds really complicated. And when you try to describe it, it is, it is complicated, but it's still actually really enjoying to watch, you know, and um, enjoyable to watch. And, you know, like with other Wes Anderson films, there's different acts and you are used to the idea that he does put, you know, short films within films, you know, like to say, you know, at the start of the Life Aquatic, for example. So you're used to the fact that he does play around with these sort of things. But I think this is probably his first time doing something this particularly big in terms of how he frames it all. Yeah. Now, despite all that's going on, I suppose there is a protagonist or maybe two protagonists. Jason Schwartzman plays a, a father of, of four children who's recently lost his wife and he arrives, arrives in Asteroid City and opposite him, he rubs up against uh, actress Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, exactly. So Augie is a war photographer, like you're saying, he arrives with his kids. One of his kids is called Woodrow, is a super brainiac. He even has a little sign on his uh, top saying brainiac. And he's a member of a junior stargazers convention, which is basically a gathering of these extremely intelligent, brainy young people in this town, Asteroid City. And they basically get to show off these incredible inventions that they've invented. And just to say as well, it's set in 1955. So it's like mid-century America that, that it's set in. So Augie and his family arrive there. And Mitch Campbell arrives as well, the actor played by uh, Scarlett Johansson who she brings her daughter Dinah and Scarlett Johansson's character and Jason Schwartzman's character start to fall for each other their children start to fall for each other the son and the daughter and meanwhile then you have this other bigger cast of characters who end up in that town and they're all there for the, the Stargazers convention except for the one or two people like Steve Carell for example he plays a, a motel owner he lives in the town um, but they're basically there for this event but then something really strange and unusual happens that causes them to be trapped in the town and um, there's also um Maya Hawke is there too, also playing a teacher. She's there with a group of her kids. So you have a lot of different people all gathered together. And then meanwhile, you have the, you kind of meet the actors who play them and you get the story behind the writing, you know, of the, of the play as well too. And you get to see a sense of the actors, what they're like in real life and what they're like when they play people in Asteroid City. And just to say too, like Asteroid City is actually a really, really tiny town where a meteorite landed. So if you think about that, you get the idea that like, is this about like 
truth and reality and what people say and what they really mean. Um, and yeah. you do have the grief of the, the loss of the mother and the mother's father is played by Tom Hanks and he eventually ends up coming to the town too as well too. So you have the family grief fatherhood, which you see through a lot of um, Wes Anderson's films as well. Yeah. So far, so very Wes Anderson. Now, you mentioned Tom Hanks. Like, the cast, he has what Woody Allen used to have, uh, actors queuing up to be in his movies, because there are just so many people here. Jeff Goldblum pops up for about three seconds. Adrian Brody, Hope David. Like, it's just actor after actor. Clearly, he can command these people. Now, let me bring you a quick clip for our listeners of Asteroid City. This is when Jason Schwartzman first meets... Scarlett Johansson's character as she's eating a waffle and he decides to take a picture. You took a picture of me. Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer. You didn't ask permission. I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer? Mostly. Sometimes I cover sporting events. My name is Augie Steenbeck. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that? That picture? Hmm. Well, if it's any good, I guess I'll try to sell it to a magazine, now that you mention it. Midge Campbell, eating a waffle. That's a clip there from Asteroid City, which I'm talking to Aoife Barry about, which is on release from this week, the new Wes Anderson movie. So we've explained, or you've explained very well what's going on. It's incredibly complicated and there are stories within stories, Aoife. What did you make of this? I find this such an interesting film because I really love, like I said at, at the start of the show, I really love what Wes Anderson does in terms of how he does it and the huge amount of thought that goes into it. And I really like that he's influenced by like mid-century America and that he really shows this in this particular film. You know, it's just such a lovely aesthetic. I, I love that visually. And then in terms of the plot, I found it kind of complicated at times and like the the dialogue obviously his dialogue isn't always very straightforward and it's it's getting less and less straightforward really as his career goes on so you don't always understand I didn't always understand what was happening um but thinking about it afterwards and you know listening to other people talk about it and reading stuff about it I really want to see it again to see what I might have missed the first time but I feel like it's still a really enjoyable experience you know and I I love seeing his stuff like I said in the cinema because I get a lot out of the visuals out of it and I did really love different elements of it like I thought the kids were really funny and the the triplet daughters are hilarious like they're just absolutely gas characters they're only in a, a kind of on and off they're really they're really funny though I like that he brought grief into it and fatherhood again and that idea of the kind of 1950s you know post-war fatherhood and the impact of the war and 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 like the space race and kind of the military on on men in um in families at that time Mm. and I really love the the usual like deadpan ironic humor um you know there's even small things like there's a road runner that appears different times on the road because when you look at the road and the straight road that goes right through asteroid city you do think of the road runner cartoon so he's really thought of thought of everything um and I, I you know I think the end of it was when I felt the most emotion I didn't feel too much emotion going through it until the very end I suppose after the 
all the characters go through in, in the play, in Asteroid City, the play, they go through that strange experience they go through and they're all kind of thinking about life. Um, and you can see that there's been some sort of impact on them that they're dealing with like life after this big thing happening. Um, mm-hmm. And I, then I just, just finally, I would say that I really liked Jason, Jason Schwartzman. He's always really, really great. But I thought Scarlett Johansson was excellent. I think she was my real standout in this. There's just something about her character, Midge Campbell, and you know the sadness and the like existential crisis that she's going through. Yeah, really enjoyed. Yeah, well, let me give you my two cents, if I might, and and just to say again that the missing father and the grief, like they're constant motifs in yeah. his movies, and Bill Murray is often Bill Murray wasn't in this one, surprisingly. No, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, but so here's my take on it. I enjoyed this from start to finish it was it was was trademark humor in it the deadpan humor supremely well acted it looks beautiful and it was a succession of very clever scene after scene but i was kind of reminded and this gives me no pleasure to say this but i remember someone i know once saying that he thought the last couple of seamus heaney poetry collections suffered occasionally from the fact that you felt seamus heaney sat down at his table and said i have to write a seamus heaney poem And in a way, I felt a small bit like Wes Anderson's reputation has overcome the director, Wes Anderson, because I didn't feel a huge emotional connection to this. If you take the Royal Tannenbaums, it has all that quirky and beautiful looking Wes Anderson stuff. But there's this heartbreaking story about a missing father and a father trying to reconnect with his troubled children. And there's a gorgeous line at the end where Ben Stiller's character says, we've had a hard year done. And Gene Hackman puts his arm out and says, I know you have Jazzy. And I cry every time I see it. Uh I, I didn't get that in this. So I felt it was a succession of really pleasing things. Plus, I was somewhat lost by the story and, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what was relating to what. And then suddenly Brian Canson would pop up. So I did enjoy it because it's hard not to. You marvel at the pyrotechnics of the storytelling, but I'm not sure there was enough of a beginning, middle and end of a story there to satiate me, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing about like his films as he's gone on in his career is that sense of because his dialogue in particular is so like ironic and so mannered that it can be really hard to get through to the emotion of it and you have to really think a lot about what he's trying to say with what's happening and I don't think that's necessarily always that enjoyable when you when you want an instant emotional impact because like people adore the Royal Tenenbaums because even though it has that irony it has that deadpan humor it has really quirky sometimes unbelievable characters it has like you're saying at the kernel of it like real emotion and real life like who you know who hasn't been let down by somebody who Mm. hasn't had somebody in their family that they haven't you know they've wanted a better connection with you know um who isn't a messed up person in some way but I think with this film sometimes you're kind of lost a little bit by what people are saying like Mm. you you like it and it rolls over you're like oh dad does this and Midge does this but it is a film that requires a lot of analysis afterwards. And mm. some people just, you know, sometimes some people will love that analysis and they will just eat it up with a spoon. And other people will be like, I don't want to spend two hours, uh, you know, after watching a film analyzing what the hell it was about. Mm, yeah. So what would you say stars wise for Asteroid City? Oh, God, it's actually really tricky. I don't think I've thought about this properly. I feel like it's, you know, like in terms of 
the enjoyment of actually being in there and watching it all unfold in front of you be like oh this is like a four-star movie but i think in terms of the emotion and and plot you'd be more at a three-star um so for me it's like two different movies it's like did i enjoy did i enjoy the process of it and sitting there and enjoying it yeah i'd give it four but did i did i get something out of it in terms of emotionally it it would be a three out of five definitely for me what about yourself well it's what you're like a politician there so are you saying four out of five or three out of five because you can't give two scores 3.5 i'll give it 3.5 3.5 stick it in the middle yeah yeah Yeah. i'd probably go i'd probably go three for, for for all the reasons i outlined and you know sitting there i was enjoying it all the time and i found myself looking around the screen like at different parts of the screen trying to pick up and everything which you rarely do in a movie these these days so you have to admire the ambition and the imagination but it, it it probably didn't carry me the way i hope a wes anderson movie will so that would be three for me 3.5 three and a half for me for barry and i would just say i mean hopefully me and Eva's analysis is enough for you but the reviews when you look around the world are kind of wildly divergent on this i think it's fair to say it has divided people definitely like some people are amazing incredible you know mm. tour de force and other people like i don't you know i just didn't get it and didn't enjoy yeah. it like after it was on a can it definitely had had mixed reviews but there is something really like there's something enjoyable about that but yeah I still, for his next film i would like him to see to see him to go back to more of that like overt emotion because i think yeah. you can combine the beautiful production and more overt emotion um because he's got it he's got it in there and his his themes that he always returns to like grief and family and fatherhood there's so much there that you can delve into you know absolutely well that is three and a half for me for barry and three for me for asteroid city which is on general release from this friday the 23rd of june Aoife, thanks a million thank you so much up next, Gene Stupnitsky, the writer and director of the new Jennifer Lawrence comedy, No Hard Feelings. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. Before the break, we were talking about the release of Wes Anderson's latest movie, Asteroid City. I suppose the other big new release of the week is a movie called No Hard Feelings. A comedy, a sex comedy, people are calling it, where Jennifer Lawrence thinks she's found the answer to her financial troubles. She's in danger of possibly losing her home or her mother's home. She discovers an intriguing, and apparently this is something that was actually found in real life, an intriguing job offer by wealthy kind of helicopter parents who are looking for someone to date, that's an inverted commas, their introverted 19-year-old son, Percy, who's played by Andrew Barth Feldman, and bring him out of his shell before he leaves for college and date. Is euphemistic for, I suppose, bringing him out of his sexual shell. But awkward Percy proves to be more of a challenge than she expected, and time is running out. She is one summer to make him a man, so to speak, or lose it all. Now, it was written and directed by Eugene Stubnitsky, who previously wrote Bad Teacher, that Cameron Diaz movie. He also did a lovely comedy, coming-of-age comedy called Good Boys. He was also the head writer for a couple of years on The American Office. So I had a lot to talk to him about, and mostly the new comedy, No Hard Feelings. Did this, in a way, come about because Jennifer Lawrence wanted to do a straight ahead comedy and she thought you were the man for the job or something like that. I hope so. I hope that was the reason. <laughs> I hope it wasn't money. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've known her for a while and I always knew she had it in her. I knew one day she was going to do a, a straight ahead comedy and I really selfishly wanted to be the director of it. So uh, <laughs> yes. 
And tell me this, I was thinking there's a lot of heart in the movie and it's it's a coming of age for both of them, uh, Andrew's character and, and, and also Jennifer's. Yeah. But, and, and I was thinking your previous movie, Good Boys, was, was a, you know, coming of age of sort. Is this something you, you clearly like to write about? Well, there's so much comedy in... Um in, in this eight, you know, in tween years and teen years and puberty yeah. and, uh, just young and trying to make sense of the world. Um, so I think there's a, for comedy, there's like a natural uh, attraction to these years. I don't know if I'll continue doing it, but I, cause I feel like I got kind of got it out, uh, with these two, <laughs> but, but yes, there is, uh, I do like writing about it. Yeah. And there's, you know, we don't want to give any spoilers, but there's, there's a lot of heart in it because, you know, for the uninitiated, she takes it as a job, Jennifer's character, but they both get plenty out of it in a way uh, that maybe either of them weren't expecting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for her, it, it is just a job, but you know, she's a, a woman with, with some issues and, uh, mm. and she's definitely has an issue with intimacy and he's someone who, you know, she's very quick. She'll easily, you know, she'd much rather have sex than actually talk about her feelings with someone and he's someone who's looking for a connection. He doesn't necessarily mm. just want sex. He wants a friend. And she doesn't, she can't really do that. She doesn't feel comfortable doing that. So it's kind of a battle of wills uh, to see who's going to get what they need. Do you have any misgivings writing a character, particularly a female one, who's hired for a job to have sex with someone? Or is that just, well, hey, it's comedy? Well, I mean, I think in 2023, there's a real a sex positive movement. And, mm. you know, she is coming at it from a place, first of all, she's, it's her choice. She has agency and mm. uh, she's trying to save her house. And this is something that for her is, it makes perfect sense and is not, there's no stigma attached to it. Bad dates, awkward dates uh, abound in this. Is that, is that, I don't know. <laughs> Had you plenty of personal experience in that? Cause you write them very well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess, um, as much as anyone, uh, but it's also more specific to these two people. You know, what is mm. the worst thing that can happen to someone who's who's anxious and nervous to be there, or to someone that is trying to close the deal? Um, uh, you know, what what are impediments to that? So it's really just throwing up roadblocks and obstacles to two people with two different agendas. Uh, yeah, and this, like you saw on Craigslist, that parents this kind of existed in some fashion that parents. Because I suppose one of the themes in this is, is helicopter parenting and, and, and parents trying to maybe do things they shouldn't do. And as a child and a parent, I can appreciate that. But so this, you saw this somewhere on Craigslist or something like that, a parent suggesting someone this, could take my son for the summer. Like This was an actual ad from 2013 that uh, the, two of the producers, Mark Provzero and Naomi Odenkirk, uh, sent to me. And I thought to myself, who are the parents that are putting this out and, and mm. who who's in a position uh who answers this ad and what's going on in her life and in the back of my mind i was always looking for so, you know something for for jennifer i thought hmm, this could be interesting yeah yeah well it certainly was tell me this i i, I ask you about <laughs> bad dates in your own life but one thing i was curious about i i have a soft spot for the movie bad teacher there's uh there's a lot of teachers in my life in terms of uh my wife's family and stuff like that but but we've all had teachers i mean just about anyone i know went to school and i was curious when i reflect on that movie you know they say a great teacher can change your life but a bad one can really ruin it did you have any <laughs> 
good or bad teaching experiences when you were a child that formed some of that when you were working on that? I, you know, it's interesting. I, I did. I had good and, and bad teachers, but I did some research for the movie and uh, I went to this um, middle school in Santa Monica and I just sat there for the school day in the back, just kind of watching this teacher try to control these kids. And I, I, this, I'm like, this is the hardest job. This is one of the hardest jobs ever. I, I could not believe, at least for my personality, I don't think I could do it. So I really gained mm -hmm. a lot of respect for the job sitting in that classroom and watching uh, these kids uh, just kind of, you know, it's, it's a very tough age, 12 years old. So yeah. uh, I have a lot of respect for people that do that job. As it happened last week, by chance, I watched three episodes of series three of the U.S. office uh, and I hadn't I hadn't watched it in a long time. You know, that show has been so successful. I'm wondering in terms of your writing on it, did you get a sense because I remember when they first, when the first, like the, the original office was beloved uh, um, on this side of the water, the, yeah. the Ricky Gervais one, and it was only 12 and then a Christmas special. And your show took on a, a complete life of its own in a way that I don't think, it became its own thing. And in a way, I know Ricky Gervais was involved in all, but in a way it had nothing to do with the UK office. It became very much its own thing. When you were writing on it, did you have a sense of, we're away from that. We're doing our own thing here. Well, when I, I came on season two, or series two, mm. uh, episode seven, and so uh, the first six episodes were, I think, much closer to the British uh, tone. Yeah. Which, and by the way, the, the British Office is probably my favorite show of all time, um, and so and I was deeply influenced by it. And then uh, it, by the time I came on, you know, Steve Carell had just done Forty Year Old Virgin. It was so likable in it that our boss, yeah. Greg Daniels, was like, let's make him less of, of a straight-ahead jerk and more maybe more pathetic, more needy, <laughs> which kind of took some of the, the sting or some of the harshness off the character. And you can kind of see that he, you know, he was like a child in a way. So, yeah. So yeah. that kind of led to, you know, it was really a difference also between, uh, you know, Ricky and Steve. You know, there's different actors and they, and they go to different places. Um, but I always thought... Uh, I, I, I always felt that like our episodes I wrote with my uh, writing partner on the office of Lee Eisenberg were the ones that are probably most British in tone, uh, which yeah. uh, I, I took great pride in. Okay, interesting. So so British comedy was was writ large in your life, Faulty oh, Towers and all that kind of stuff. Huge, yeah, yeah, huge. yeah. Um, even going back to uh, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and, oh, you know, okay. Monty Python, and uh, you know, and I, and I worked with uh, Stephen Merchant on a co-created show called Of Course. Ladies. And yeah, he, he turned me on to a lot of British comedy I didn't know about. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I love British comedy. Wonderful. And listen, finally then to close out, just to go back to it, No Hard Feelings. It's a great title uh, because of what goes on in the movie. Did you come up with that? I did. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> in a word, yes. I know you. I did. I did it all alone. No one helped me. It was, yeah, Excellent. What? Well, yeah. It was. It was a because a, a good title. It, you know. You know this better than me. The book goes a long way. It gets people in the door. It does. I, I hope people can uh, can remember it. Uh, you know, because it's not like uh, the Fast and the Furious. You know, it's not quite. <laughs> so I hope. But yes, uh, she has some issues with feelings and intimacy. And uh, yeah. So hopefully it will. And also, you know, no hard feelings as it, when he finds if he finds out how he finds out what his parents. Yeah. Did, you know, it's not personal. Well, listen, lovely to talk to you, Gene, and continued success. Thank you, John. Nice to talk to you as well.
Need a car for college, date our 19-year-old son this summer. We're looking for an attractive, kind, and intelligent woman, early to mid-20s. In exchange, we'll give you a Buick Regal, clean, rust-free 40K miles. Date is in quotes. You're actually considering this. I've had a one-night stand before and gotten zero Buick Regals for it. I had sex once because I didn't want to commute in the morning. I've had sex with a guy once to get out of playing Settlers of Catan. I had sex with a guy once on a first date because I thought he was going to kill me. Jesus. Get with me now, babe. She's talking about you, dumbass. A clip there from No Hard Feelings, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Andrew Barth Feldman. And before that, you heard me talking to Gene Stubnitsky, who is the writer and director of No Hard Feelings and was the head writer on The American Office or the co-head writer on The American Office for a good few years. Up next, Broadway star and actor Darren Lee on The King and I. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now we don't feature musicals that often on the show, but we're making a slight exception this week for obvious reasons. Firstly, the first music I ever saw, if you're interested, you're probably not, was in a hall in Kildare when I was 10 and it was The King and I. And of course, The King and I was a famous movie starring Yul Brenner. And on top of that, Borgars Energy Theatre is bringing the multi-Tony winning award production of Roger and Hammersmith's timeless classic, The King and I, from the 27th of June to the 1st of July. It, of course, is set in Bangkok in the 1860s. The King and I tells the story of the unconventional and tempestuous relationship that develops between the King of Siam and Anna Leones, a British school teacher whom the modernist king in an imperialist world brings to Siam to teach his many wives and children and maybe mix things up a bit. The uh, seasoned musical actress and Irish star Annaline Beachy plays Anna in this version of uh, The King and I. And the King is played by Broadway star and film actor Darren Lee. Darren Lee started performing at the tender age of 11, becoming a serious regular on a kid on Kids Incorporated, which was a Disney Channel favourite. He's since gone on to be a big musical star as well as an actor. And he was in Hackers, which you may remember. He played Razor opposite Angelina Jolie. He was in Sisters with Tina Fey and Amy Puller. He also danced alongside Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger in the Academy Award winning film Chicago. And he joins me now. Darren, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm very well. Sorry for the long intro, but we don't do that many musicals on the show. So I wanted to situate you correctly, you see? I understand. Listen, this version of The King and I, where you're playing The King, has won Tony Awards. And from what I gather, it is a spectacle to end all spectacles. I mean, this is a musical in the very musical and spectacular sense of that phrase, right? Yes, it's a very classic um, musical, and um, this production is very lavish. Um, it's very gorgeous. This The set design is really stunning. The costume designs by Kathy Zuber are just beautiful. The direction by uh, Bartlett Sher is phenomenal. The lighting. The cast is really, really delightful. Um, and I think that your audiences will just, just love it. And, you know, there are some people, and I could be one of those. I said we don't do musicals that often on the show. I love movies. I love music. Sometimes when they come together, it doesn't always work for me. So how do you, not that it's your job to, because it's probably going to be sold out anyway, but what do you say to people who go, ah, musicals, they're not really my thing? I think that at at our core, I think that we are drawn to storytelling. 
and we're drawing to storytelling that that resonates with us. And for some people, that is a film. And for some people, that's television. For some people, that's a book. Um, mm-hmm. Musicals are really just another way of storytelling. And I think that sometimes when when people think, oh, then the characters start to sing, that, then it, then I don't understand. Well, I think that for many people, um, music and singing is also um, an emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of a musical is that is that when the character's dialogue is no longer able to take them to that emotional climax, the, then they start to sing. And then when they no longer are able to, to do that, then they start to dance. And I think that if you look at musicals as storytelling in that way, I think that they might be more accessible and uh, to more people. Yeah. Now, that, I'm sure you've been asked this a few times, but, you know, The King and I, it's set in, in a country that's no longer even called that way. It was like Siam back in the day. You know, I mentioned in the in the intro, his many wives. So what would you say to people who, who think this might be an old-fashioned story? Because I've read interviews and you're kind of of the opinion that it speaks to now maybe more than it did when it first came out in the 30s. Well, I, I think so. I think that the idea of of the king having many wives when looked at through Western culture, of course, seems sort of barbaric and misogynistic. Um, The Siam at the time was a country that did not have a military. Mm -hmm. And so the way that this very small country and this very wealthy country was able to retain power was that he did it through marriage. So he had wives from all of the surrounding countries, and that, in essence, allowed him to stay in power. Mm. And so when you look at it that way, I think it's very different than, oh, just it's just this gratuitous abuse of women. It, it really was about staying relevant. And when I say that the show is still relevant today, it, I think it's, it's, it's that the idea of when a country understands that it has to pivot, it has to understand that it has to bring things from the outside world mm. and able, uh, for it to be able to stay relevant, I think that's what this story is about. The king understood that he would be swallowed up by surrounding countries if he didn't try to adapt to Western culture. At the same time, he rules his country as an authoritarian. And so he believes, or the, the way that it has been, is that he has to know exactly what to do and, and he doesn't isn't allowed to question anything. And so it's this really complex idea where a king who is, has set up the rules of his country realizes that to be able to move his people forward, he has to adapt. At the same time, that also has he's forced to analyze whether or not his own extinction is the only way for that to take place. Yeah, well, that, that's that's a very modern way of, of putting it. All right. Tell me this. I mentioned Yul Brenner as this iconic king. Is that something you, you pay attention to? Obviously, you're doing your own performance. But did you rewatch it or do you just go, I'm going to take this script and music and, and work it to my own fashion? Well, I, I grew I grew up watching the movie, um, you know, and I was aware of, of the performance as an Asian American performer. I grew up in the United States. Mm. Um, I think that it, 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 I was always aware that there was this role, that there was this king uh, character. Um, I, I think that it has been they're great shoes to fill. Yul Brenner has done a brilliant job with it. When I um, m- much later in my career, obviously I started when I was eleven, and so much later in my career, after I had done several Broadway shows and and I had been able to play roles and and you know whenever I take on a role, I I just try to step into it. I try to bring myself to it. I um, I made it actually a point not to rewatch the film, not to not to um, try to emulate anything that you. 
Yul Brenner had done. And yeah. so um, I really just tried to make it my own. And so that that was my approach to it. Um, and um, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that someone has has um, hired an Asian performer to be able to play this role and that I have the opportunity to inhabit it. Yeah. Now, I'm. you're coming to Dublin next week, as I say, from the 27th to the uh, 1st of July. So that, that that's a week of performances in the Borgosh Energy Theatre. Or there's no the anymore. We get rid of the definitive article. It's Borgosh <laughs> Energy Theatre. But I'm currently talking to you where you're in Belfast. And my understanding today is I'm talking to you between shows, a matinee and an evening performance. So firstly, thank you for taking the time. But secondly, I mean, people don't always get it, but a musical run, it's tough work. I mean, you have to get your seven hours of sleep and drink your orange juice, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, like anything, um, uh, 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 doing a musical can, can be very taxing on the body, on the voice, um, physically and emotionally. Um, so today, our, our schedule generally is we have performances between a Tuesday and a Saturday. And within that time, we do eight shows total. And so I did two shows yesterday. I do two shows today. And I'm speaking to you from my dressing room between shows. Wow. Well, keep at it. Tell me this. I, I mentioned in the, the very long intro I gave you, you've lived a very busy life, uh, <laughs> but you, you, you were on the Disney Channel uh, on Kids Incorporated, which I think we got here at some stage. But like I have a 10 year old, he's soon to be 11. The thoughts of him being on TV every week just scare me to death. What, what was that like as an 11 year old to be on national television? You know, I, 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 um, it, it was a lot of fun for me. I, I grew up, I started singing and dancing kind of when I was nine years old. I did grow up in the sort of Los Angeles area, sort of the area of where sort of te- there was a lot of television being okay. produced. And so it just happened that, that my dance teacher and my parents sent a videotape to a show called Star Search, which was basically um, kind of a variety show. And I was on that as, as a child. And then from that, I got an agent and I was really fortunate to be on one of these kids shows. You know, it's not for everybody. It, it sort of takes a certain personality type. And, mm. and you know, because you go to school there and, and the, the, the kids in the show become your friends. Um, it is it is very different, of course, than just growing up um, in a normal, normal way. But it, it works for me. And I'd like to hope that I turned out okay, but you know, that's always a challenge. <laughs> you sound pretty level-headed so far. And are you one of these people who's, I don't know, like the Energizer bunny? You just, you've always had a lot of energy because you, you strike me as that kind of person. I, I have. I've always had a lot of energy. I've always, um, I've always been very fortunate in that, that if I've had a passion about something, whether it was dancing or gymnastics or singing, that my parents were, were very supportive. And I think that when that happens, then you're allowed to have the hobby that you like also invigorate you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even though I'm set to do two shows today, once I get out there and once you have the audience there, it is it is really thrilling. And and um, the energy just sort of cycles around and you feed each other. Um, and it's it's a live theater is a re, is an experience that you can't have on television or film. Now, talking of film, I, I mentioned that you, you, you did a lot in film and hackers and Chicago and all those kind of things. I mean, you're doing more musicals now and you choreographed and direct and all that kind of stuff. You've a very impressive CV, as I've alluded to. But was there a time in your life when you just wanted to be an actor or how did that start and finish? 
Well, I really did start as a dancer, um, and that that led to being in musicals, and that led to my first Broadway show where where I was really hired pretty much as a specialty dancer and a tumbler. Um, musicals, of course, require you to sing, and so I sort of picked that element up. I think that the way that I danced and, and was always sort of theatrical in nature, and it was always, I really was drawn to the storytelling that the body can tell. And so I was lucky enough that... Um, once I was sort of in New York City, um, my agent started to send me on on um, films and things like that. And that's how I, I um, was in Hackers and, and how I've continued to do that. And so I think it really started with dance. Um, but but of course, it's really nice to be able to to have all of the skills that 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 you need to develop to be able to be in musicals and to be able to then sort of have opportunities where I can take some time off from doing a musical and do a film and take some time off from doing either and to direct or choreograph. It's just it's really I'm, I sort of feel like I'm living in a really wonderful time in which I'm able to exercise all the things that that I enjoy and that people are giving me opportunities to do so. And so there may be more straight acting without singing and dancing in your future to come. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm definitely not um, purposely trying to not do that. I've just been very fortunate to be employed um, doing <laughs> doing this right now. <laughs> okay, so if anyone's listening, you're still available for the next That's Robert De Niro right. picture yeah. or whatever. Yeah, very good. Listen, let me just end by asking you about COVID and Broadway. Because, you know, during COVID, there was all these, you know, things that were closed and every country had them. But like, I remember watching a telethon in New York and Billy Joel sang Miami 2017 and it has the I've seen the lights go out on Broadway and it was like this metaphor for the world being closed that the lights had gone off on Broadway there was no Broadway shows and that seemed to be you know nearly more than any other public entertainment thing maybe outside sport here but the idea of Broadway being shut for so long was was you know you're a Broadway star it must have been a tough time for you guys it was absolutely a very tough time. I think that, you know, we, we all learned a lot in COVID during COVID times. We learned to pivot and learn to do different things with our skill sets. The, the, the particular thing about Broadway and theater or live theater is that you look into someone else's eyes and you sing directly into their face. And that particular act was impossible to do for us. And so as a lot of other industries and jobs went remote, we we couldn't do that. And mm-hmm. so we really had to wait until um, it was safe enough to be able to be have live theater again. And we had to hope that the audiences had missed it just as much. And um, I tell you that that I appreciate it more than ever every time that I step out on stage. And I appreciate that the people that come out to see us, um, you know, it's something that that I don't take for granted, that it takes a lot of people to to put on a show. And I'm just really, really glad that I get to do it. Well, the lights are very much back on on Broadway and indeed on the Borgash Energy Theatre where you can see The King and I starring Darren Lee from the 27th of June to the 1st of July. Darren, finally, finally then, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Using the last part of the show, I tend to talk to someone about their favourite movie, but we were wanted to talk to you this week. But what would you say your favourite film of all time is? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think... Uh you know, I really uh, this is it's real. This is really nerdy, but I really like the movie Inception. Oh, great! <laughs> I like this. I like this idea. I think that I, this idea that you could sort of tap into your dreams and that you could live out a, like a whole and sort of complete life um, in this in this sort of um, sci-fi way. I also really thought that it was directed beautifully. I thought the idea of 
of all these multiple layers of dreams was going to would be impossible to show in film. But I thought the director used um, color and the palette of color and the way that they filmed each which with each lens so that you could follow that very complex and deep story. So for I, for just complete sort of nerdy sci-fi reasons, uh, Inception is my favorite movie. Fantastic. Well, listen, I better let you back to prepare for this evening's performance. <laughs> Darren Lee, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Actor and musical star Darren Lee there talking to me about his role in The King and I, which comes to the Borgosh Energy on the 27th of June and runs to the 1st of July. That's it for this week. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking a lot about Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the big summer blockbuster, is upon us. It's being released next week. And I'm going to be talking to its director, James Mangold, which I'm very excited about. And we'll be reviewing the movie. I'm off to see it on... Monday night. So let's see what happens. We'll do all that next week. In the meantime, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I'll remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on Newstalk. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend, and I'll talk to you all next week.